Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 113. I told you you couldn't ditch me. This week we're discussing season 5, episode 5 of Buffy, No Place Like Home, and the 2013 Doctor Who Christmas special, The Time of the Doctor. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Okay, Buffy time right now. Um, No Place Like Home. Um, Interesting title. I think I want to keep that in the back of my mind. It kind of struck me as a Wizard of Oz, you know, kind of overtones there. Um, Nothing... uh, I don't think the connection in the episode is quite as obvious as what I was uh, expecting, but maybe we can think about it and see what connections there are um, to be made. But I don't want to start with uh, Buffy's home life. Um, Before we get into (laughs) that, um, first, I want to start with, I guess, the kind of antagonist plot um because i think it'll be a good segue into talking about um you know dawn and joyce and buffy and their whole uh domestic relationship but Mm -hmm. so i want to start with uh the monks and uh and then lead into glory here um so we don't get a whole lot of you know, we kind of start in, in media res, I guess, of these monks fleeing in terror from, you know, the beast. Um, and we don't get a ton of backstory and exposition, but I feel like we could talk about, uh, you know, the plot here. I think we're kind of getting set up to have a lot of that explored further in the season. Um, mm-hmm. But we kind of are presented with, you know, these monks who have, you know, a duty and a plan and are very sort of self-sacrificial and, like, clearly the fate of, you know, the world or the universe sort of rests, you know, on these monks. So they're saying, like, our lives aren't important. We have to protect the key and everything. So, you know, kind of setting up this idea of the key as this sort of important magical talisman of some kind. Um, You know, and... I'm not sure what else to say about them in particular. I guess my main kind of note for them would be that, um, again, that kind of self-sacrifice of they are, their duty to protect the key is above everything else. So you even have, uh, you know, even after they hide the key and everything, you have the, the more senior monk bearing up under interrogation mm-hmm. and torture and all these things. And... You know, she's doing her best to, you know, really break him and mess him up and intimidate him and all these things, and he just doesn't give in. Um, And in the end, sort of, you know, dies without even, um, you know, kind of dies leaving Buffy with the responsibility of protecting this key, so. um, Yeah. It's kind of yeah. set up, I guess, like, setting up that this is more important than just, like, a one-off uh, episode 
issue, you know? So this is something that yeah. a lot of importance rests on the key and keeping it safe. Well, yeah. So a few things there. One, I think, so this is where, obviously this isn't the first time where we've sort of had Buffy, you know, interact with um, creatures or beings from like other parts. But, you know, if one of the thing, if one of the trends of Buffy each season is to mm -hmm. sort of broaden the worldview a little bit, mm -hmm. um, you know, last season we had the move from, you know, exploring the move sort of both metaphorically into adulthood, but also kind of out of the home and into like college life and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, the monks kind of represent like an even further sort of outreach. It's like we've talked before how there's sort of, and, and we know this from Angel and stuff too, how there's sort of like other forces mm -hmm. kind of out there you know, that are fighting the good fight, so mm -hmm. to speak. And I think we can see the monks as kind of maybe one of those who, who were unknown to us and to Buffy and right. Giles and whoever else, you know, before that they're clearly, you know, Sunnydale sits on a Hellmouth, but like the Hellmouth isn't the only right. thing that's sort of dangerous. And, and, you know, the monk, the monk tells Buffy, you know, about the key, that it's energy, that it's a portal. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of, there's kind of like two different things there. Okay. It's both energy and a portal mm -hmm. at the same time, but then it's also that it opens the door. So it's like, well, which is it? <laughs> you know, it's like, right. there's, there's an energy component to it. There's a, a factor where it kind of is the door, the portal itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where the word portal comes from is the Latin for door. And that it also opens the door at the mm -hmm. same time. So, so there's kind of this threefold right. thing there. And, and I think um, going back to like, I think I've even said this before, like as Buffy kind of goes on. And again, I think this is sort of influenced from um, Angel actually, where we're getting some, maybe a feedback loop from, from Angel with, um, you know, what, like when he goes to see the oracles, you know, it's kind of this other dimensional place yeah. Where, you know, we, we're talking about things like higher planes and higher levels. And I think this idea of portal and opening doors and, you know, keys that are energy and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and not that we haven't seen sort of like quasi other dimensional type stuff. But I sure. think this is all where we're sort of it's pointing to in Buffy and that, you know, as time goes on, like maybe gets retconned a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. from like the sort of traditional Christian idea of like hell and right. earth and heaven to sort of a many universes kind of right. idea. And, and I think that's where we're sort of prompted. So like both of those things, I think sort of the existence of the monks who are sort of this, what we believe to be, at least at this point, you know, this force of good that's protecting like Buffy is protecting you know the area over the Hellmouth and making mm -hmm. sure it doesn't open like there are these monks doing some sort of protection of some energy slash portal slash door you know um that presumably glory <laughs> right. or the beast the beast she's not actually named in the episode but right. we know her name is going to be revealed as glory right um Actually, that's not her full name, but we'll we'll leave it at that. Um, that, you know, she, for some reason, wants this key. And we don't know why. Like, we don't know the details about why or yeah. what it is. I mean, 
you can imagine why, <laughs> but like, I mean, it may not be a huge surprise to consider right. why she might want this key. Uh, but yeah, that, that there's this, that, that there are these kind of, again, that this is kind of a broadening of sort of the worldview mm-hmm. or the, or even like the cosmic view of, right. you know, Buffy uh, in a way. So I think that's what we're doing. And, and I think, you know, oddly enough, perhaps, um, even going back to the first episode of the season, Buffy versus Dracula, like kind of a silly episode in a way, mm-hmm. although we talked about how there was a lot in it that really worked from a thematic view as well. Um, but I do think one of the things of that is too, is that, you know, you have this very European story coming to Sunnydale, whereas mm-hmm. a lot of, I mean, yes, like Angel is, you know, originally from Ireland or whatever, and Spike's originally from England, but you know, even those weren't like, you know, Dracula, like this very sure. Eastern European, right. you know, right. story world, coming yeah. to old yeah. world kind of thing. So, so I think that, you know, that's sort of all setting up kind of the season um, in that way. Um, also yeah. just kind of, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to, um, maybe you should finish what you were going to say first. Um I- I was going to talk just, I was just going to mention, you know, this is introducing Claire Kramer too, right. who, um, you know, is, I, I mean, it's not surprising to think that we're going to see her again. We see that Buffy really struggles in fighting against mm-hmm. her and sort of doesn't act like she jumps out the window and, and whatever, but like, you know, uh, glory or the beast or whatever you want to call her, you know, kind of does her own, you know, throws her own tantrum and has, her own right. sort of uh, stoppage at that point. But, you know, there's certainly not an expectation that, like, she's down for the count. She's just kind of right. biding her time or whatever. Like, gives gives Buffy an opportunity to run away. Um, right. Um, yeah, I want to talk about Glory a little bit more. And I guess on the subject of what we call her, um, this is kind of what I was... Uh, transitioning to a second ago that you know we don't find out um her name specifically but um i agree with you that as the sort of worlds are expanding you could see more so than in season one when it is clearly the hell mouth um you know more so i think you're right that like there are kind of grayer lines or alternative explanations so like hell that you know angel gets thrown into is kind of an alternate dimension or you know demons talk about rather than coming from hell they come from a dimension that's specifically their own so mm-hmm. it's almost like a pseudo alien kind of thing but um but i do think it it's interesting that even though that's the case and definitely the the key could open the portal to some other you know, dimension, at the same time, they're still using, for this storyline, like, particularly biblical language. Like, there's still that kind of religious overtone of, besides the monks, um, you know, you have them referring to glory as, you know, the beast and the abomination, um, which are kind of like, you know, revelation, satanic sort of names. Um, And even... I don't know what the name glory signifies, but even that has kind of a, from the other point of view, you know, it's not, usually it would be a, 
a positive rather than a negative name, right. but but it's still that kind of, you know, kind of a biblical name. Um, so it's still kind of retaining the veneer of the religious symbolism, even if it's sort of suggesting that that's not literally what's going on. Um, yeah. And, and, but then you have I, the contrast between that, her kind of, because in the prologue, it's they're running from the beast, and you kind of have the exploding door, but you don't really see what's coming to get them, and you imagine all sorts of hell beasts and all these kinds of things. And right. then when you see her, it's, you know, you, she doesn't look like she should be called the beast or the abomination. Right. It's this very kind of... You know, a tall blonde bomb, in heels, yeah. bombshell, slinky, yeah. all in red. You know, um, so the contrast between uh, what she's called and and how she appears are kind of interesting. I think. Yeah. Um, another and and I don't know if this is a nod to Harry Potter, but she's also called at one point that which cannot be named. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, right. Voldemort kind of. Yeah. 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 So, but, but yeah, that thing that like, that you can't actually call her by her name, mm -hmm. um, her actual name and that, you know, so there are these sort of euphemistic things. Um, but there's also a corresponding thing there too, between her and Dawn, mm -hmm. between Glory and Dawn, insofar as their appearance doesn't reflect what they actually are right. too right. perhaps i mean based on like the the dichotomy like you're that you're pointing out between the name and what we would normally see as uh yeah you know a beautiful creature you know oh how can a beautiful you know woman be evil kind of thing um which goes back to i oh i can't remember if if it was uh Coriolsen or 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 I can't remember where, where it was that I was either heard or was reading or whatever, but mm -hmm. like, you know, just that idea of like the idea of beauty and ugliness, both kind of being reflected of good and evil, you mm -hmm. know, one way or the other is, is more of a modern conception. Mm -hmm. Like there, you know, there are certainly like magical old women Mm -hmm. who weren't necessarily beautiful but were good in mm -hmm. fairy tales and that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. and of course there were also ugly old witches too who were not right. so good. Like but that like that there isn't such a clear line as we tend to have today between sort of beauty good, ugly bad. Mm -hmm. Um except for in cases like this where that sort of where you notice the dichotomy because, right, because it's, it's inverted. Because right. it's inverted right. and and yeah, so um well, and even like, even like, the, I think the name is the part that really sticks out to me because I think the kind of femme fatale is, is, uh, frequent enough that the idea of a beautiful villain isn't so strange, but what's strange is calling her the beast or the abomination. Like those yeah. just, you know, like are not kind of sexy titles like you expect but a, I think a, a temptress like her. So I, I think there's still a subversion there. But I think there's a difference between the femme fatale and calling Glory the Beast because right. I think the Beast implies like beauty and the Beast. Like mm -hmm. that that's what the contrast kind of 
right. inherent in our society is, is there's the beauty and there's the beast. And it's like, well, the beauty is the beast. I don't think femme fatale has quite the same thing. I think femme fatale tends to be more of, more of an anti-hero kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe she does some bad things, but we're still kind of rooting for her. Right. And I don't know that that's the same association as like, Names like the Beast and the right, Abomination. Right. Well, and clearly, I mean, she's definitely not one to root for here. Like, she's not even kind of, um, yeah. There's really not much hero in her anti-hero. Like, right. My note was nuttier than Squirrel Poo. Like, that's what it. Like, she just, yeah. you know, is clearly um, coming apart you know, at the seams and barely holding her sanity together. Um, yeah. So that's interesting that you picked that up right, right off. Um, well, I mean, I, I think mean, it's maybe not strong right, too. Maybe not right away, but um, the, the scene in particular where they kind of have her, they kind of start cutting, you know, in her little monologue where it's like her uh, thing about, you know, typical, 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 like repeating herself and the kind of babble that she has of, you know, um, she says the whole mortal meat sack comes complete with stink and bile, sweat and protein. Yes, I said humans. Not now, mommy's talking. So that idea of like interrupting herself, talking to voices that aren't there. Um, and, uh, you know, that her kind of, it's like, it's almost like Drusilla in a way that there's like, that kind of nonsense that you know probably it's not nonsense probably if you could decode it there's some meaning in there but it comes across as sort of gibberish um but yeah to me it's sort of i don't know her whole sort of demeanor of um you know just the way she talks to the monk playing sort of you know, going from A to Z between kind of tempting him and then intimidating him and then trying to, like, whine and act like she's the victim and you're just, you know, being mean to me. Like, every single tactic she can think of and flipping between the others. It's sort of, like, there's not a lot of um, control over... Or maybe it is very controlled. I don't know. But it seems to me that it's just... It's almost like a random flipping between different strategies and attitudes. Um, And it made me wonder how much insight she has. Like, is it just sort of this outpouring of her feeling, you know? Um, That's how it came across to me anyway. Yeah. Well, and of course, so she has the guard there, right? And she kind of puts her hands on him and... Then we see the guard a little bit later. Yeah. And he's not so sane. Right, right. So there's... And, his, there's def- and doing that seems to calm her, that she does, whatever she does, sort of this, ah, that's better. Like, she was about to go nuts herself, and doing that, whatever she did to him, seems to sort of be able to pull herself together a bit more. Sure. Um, so, yeah. I don't, I mean, we don't know what that's all about at this point, so noticing it is good. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and and realizing too just so we have the same guard right so it's the guard that buffy meets at the beginning right who then is captured by glory Mm -hmm. who then winds up in the hospital sort of his own babbling and saying like i have important things Mm -hmm. um you know to talk to what it was i forget something like about having an important message or something um yeah um we yeah and he tells buffy the message about her family that you know they they come through the family they get to your family yeah um not the first time we've seen a crazy person yelling at someone or or saying right right. i know things about you slash your family right um Right, so it kind of begs the question, was that guy another victim of Glories who was sort of used and then sort of set loose and, and you know, ran into Dawn and started yeah. kind of telling her these things? Right, or and whether or not he was a victim of Glory, certainly there's a continuing theme of sort of insanity going about, and that maybe there's whether it's glory or whether there's something even else connecting all of them. Right. Um, yeah, there's something out. Uh, and, and so of course with the guard in the hospital too, we also get, um, another view of the same nurse slash soon to be doctor, mm-hmm. um, Ben, who, who had helped out Joyce previously. So just, you know, again, not a very like big appearance, but, the fact that he shows up again, you know, I noted that worth before that he would yeah. he would show up again. Um, but yeah, just just worth mentioning that he's there and and recognizes Buffy and you know ask about her mom and that kind of stuff. So. Right. Um, okay. So yeah. So yeah. Uh, but yeah, Claire Kramer, uh, good good actress there. I mean, as far as like the crazy stuff mm-hmm. goes like she's definitely doing some and and as far as i mean we see how powerful glory is mm-hmm. like as far as she just sort of throws buffy around right like, right there really doesn't seem actually physically to be much much of a contest there yeah, yeah. Much so i mean there's clearly some sort of superman and we saw her bust through the door right or, yeah you know stuff like that like there's there's clearly some kind of supernatural yeah. thing going on here even if we don't know exactly what that is yet um, right right and and uh you know you had mentioned this before we started recording that not to say there won't be other villains this season but she is you know one of if not the big bad of the season um and that is kind of interesting um an interesting departure to have her sort of announced this early you know normally uh you know it's sort of a thing that they work up towards whether it's like you know angels slowly turning kind of evil as the season goes on or you know or um i think it was that same season where it it seemed to me that they kept passing the torch it's like each time you met a villain they got killed and and the baton passed to somebody else until you finally get to the end so um yeah, the, well, I, I don't know that it's as big of a secret that Glory is a big bad as maybe in previous right. uh, seasons. And yeah, like, 
like you just mentioned, there definitely will be other uh, evil creatures that we see, but it becomes pretty apparent uh, this this season pretty quickly that Glory is kind of the big one that they have to face. Well, um, and, and I was just thinking, too, uh, so much different than last season where we talked about how kind of the aimlessness of it was sort of the point, you know, that, I mean, mm. not that there weren't, um, like you still kind of had Adam and you, the initiative. It's not like there wasn't an arc, but also there was this idea of for a long time with the characters sort of that, uh, transition into college life and adulthood and not knowing what to do with themselves or what's the right way to, kind of live their lives now. Now here, you have kind of the introduction of Dawn. So you're setting up this, that there's sort of this mystery to be solved. And then now we're not very far in before, we don't know exactly what it means, but we know now that Dawn is this key that has to be protected. And we have a bad guy who's presumably going to try to get her. So right. So like, yeah, it's clearly. I mean, she says, "Where's yeah, my where's key? The key?" Like, there's a possessiveness there that, yeah. and and as we've seen, like, the one like maybe the least. Cra- well, I don't know if if this makes her less or more crazy. Actually, yeah. Um, sort of the focus that she seems to have, even as she's uh, e- exhibiting all of like the different personalities and tactics that you mentioned. It's like the one thing that connects them all is the desire to have this key. Right. So like, like you can kind of see that, right. If she knows you know, anything, right it's off. that she wants this key. Yeah. Right. Um, so this idea that there's like more focus, like there's like, I imagine that this will be like the thrust of the season, like that there's sort of a goal in the sense of like, okay, you know, you have a villain, you know what they want, and now it's the job to stop that from happening, you know? And so sure. there's kind of something to rally around a bit more yeah. Um, yeah. than there was, so. Um, so yeah, so definitely, definitely a different take from last season, but even, you know, even in other seasons, you know, even going back to... Um, you know, season three, where it took kind of a while to get yeah. around to the mayor, yeah. you know, being sort of revealed as the big bad. And then um, in season two, it was pretty much halfway through that Angelus steps up, mm-hmm. you know, while turns, you know, Angel turns into Angelus. And that. so, yeah, definitely um, maybe maybe since season one, where we had the initial introduction of the master right. and then he kind of goes away while we get kind of like all of these other metaphors of the week. Right. And then comes, and comes back, back kind of the near, the, near the end. Um, definitely, uh, definitely a little more upfront about it this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not without its detractors, that situation, because there, there are certainly people who feel that at this point, mm-hmm. the series starts going downhill. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now I will mention, um, this, ep- this particular episode has the most viewers for the season. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked before how we're not really sure if that says anything about the episode in particular. I like this episode. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it having had the most viewers necessarily means anything. Right. Um, other than that, maybe it's a reflection on earlier episodes in the season, or mm-hmm. perhaps uh, you had mentioned like maybe it was the advertising or, or something that for some reason there were more people this time around. Right. Um, right. 
but it's worth at least mentioning that this is the highest viewed uh, episode or, or highest rated as far as viewership goes mm-hmm. uh, of the season. Um, one other thing that I wanted to mention real quick that actually your, your, your mention of like sort of the biblicality, is that a word? Biblicalness <laughs> um, of like the names of the beasts and the abomination and even glory. Um, it kind of, so just coming off of, Dr. Amy Sturgis's uh, Lovecraft class at Mythgard. Um, yeah. There, there is and an insanity, interesting... right? <laughs> and insanity, yes. Uh, there is an interesting sort of parallel there because even though, even though Lovecraft himself was an avowed atheist and even though, um, you know, the sort of thing that he was trying to do in his stories was to create this sort of cosmicism... Um, Cosmicism, cosmic. Anyway, cosmic uh, view of, you know, uh, what's out there and that kind of thing. Um, he does also tend to use a lot of religious symbology, and so mm-hmm. there's sort of a dichotomy there where it's like, you know, of course for his characters, the religious stuff tends not to work. Mm-hmm. But um, like for example, the the last uh, story of his I just read was um, the Dreams in the Witch House, where there's like repeated attempts by like the the minority tenants in in the protagonist's um boarding house to like get him to wear a cross like mm-hmm. you know to ward off these evils that are giving him you know nightmares and stuff um which doesn't end up working but it's like the you know this thing of like there's these you know continued religious symbology and stuff and in, in Lovecraft there too so mm-hmm. you know it there is sort of an interesting parallel between some of that too. And, and definitely weed in um, perhaps most notably in cabin in the woods, but mm-hmm. you know, certainly in, in Buffy and some of his other shows too have, has some very weed and esque uh, uh, or sorry. Yes. Weed has weed and esque ideas. <laughs> weed has some very Lovecraftian ideas is uh-huh. what I meant to say. And that, um, you know, even with things like, uh, you know, we talked about, like, the ancient ones, you know, who were, like, the demons before, like, Earth came. Like, that's where the mayor, you know, right. ascending into this other demon. It was, like, this thing that was around, and now, right. you know, right. he's calling it back kind of thing. Like, there's there's sort of a reflection of the Lovecraft's, like, old ones and elder yep. beings and that kind of thing um, to all of that. So this this is maybe another sort of uh, thing there where you, where you have this sort of religious terminology but it's mm-hmm. it's religious because it's like the alien or whatever from a different dimension isn't maybe a god per se but is like you know just a much more powerful creature than we can understand and so that's right. sort of how we refer to it kind of thing. right and it's seeded itself into the culture so um, right like the 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 point of it is that it's sort of ancient and, and it's so ancient that we for, have forgotten the origin of it. Um, and so it has a kind of, you know, whether or not it, like, it may not be specifically Christian, but it has kind of the the look of an ancient religion just yeah. because it's this, this unknowable and unfathomably old power. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, anyway. So lots of good stuff to talk about there. Um, where would you like to go next? Well, so we talked a bit about this key, which is apparently very, very important. Um, 
so we might as well talk about that. So sure. I was not expecting to get, and I know we still don't know much, but I wasn't expecting to get any sort of explanation for Dawn this early. Um, so mm. that was uh, definitely surprising to me that it turns out that Dawn is the key sort of in human form. Um, so all those kind of hints that we've got about, you know, um, whether or not she's a real person and how could she have been there and then, you know, or not been there and then suddenly been there. This is, we're getting sort of the explanation of that. Um, so yeah. So on the one hand, she's not a real person. On the other hand, if she has memories and feelings and thoughts and opinions, what's the difference? And so she is a person, you know? So you're getting this kind of paradox of it's both, you know? So, and I guess just, I mean, we can talk about everything in between, but to skip to the end a bit, I like that that, I like that ending note with Buffy, how at first there's this kind of distance of you're not real and you're not really my sister. But in the end, what's really real is that Buffy is hurting her feelings and that kind of breaks through any hesitation she has. And, you know, I think there's this feeling of, well, if she wasn't a person before, she certainly is now. And you have to stop treating her, you know, like she doesn't matter. Because of course she matters. Now she's not only, so we've gone from like, you know, the annoying little sister who feels completely insignificant in the world to she's this all important key, like the fate of everything rests on, you know, yeah. who and what she is. So she may not realize that, but Buffy realizes that now. So. Um. Yeah. So I. So. I mean, I guess that is the question of of whether is Don really human? Because so Buffy does this spell thing, right? That's supposed to like detect magic, mm -hmm. and it detects magic, and and the way it does that is sort of has you know it actually sort of reminded me the way that it was um, obviously not before when I've seen this episode, but this time around. Uh, it reminded me of that um, when when the doctor is looking at Amy's pregnancy right, right. chart, like in the right. TARDIS, and it's kind of flipping back and forth. Between, there, not there, there. Not yeah, 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 yeah. So like, so now you know you have Dawn, and sort of like she's fading out, she's fading in, fading out, fading in, and so you know the monk, if we take him at his word, mm -hmm. says you know. We had to hide the key, gave it form, molded it flesh, made it human, and sent it to you. Mm. So when he says made it human, the question is, and, and he repeats that later. You know, Buffy's like, I didn't ask for this, blah, blah, blah. And the monk is human, now human and helpless. Mm. Uh, please, she's an innocent in this. She needs you. So the monk at least seems convinced, or at least seems to be trying to convince Buffy that Dawn actually is human. Mm. Now is the monk a reliable narrator? Like clearly mm -hmm. he wants Buffy to protect this key, this thing. Is he, 
just saying she's human, hoping that Buffy will like take pity on the key and do that. Or is Dawn actually human? And I think, I mean, we don't know that at this point, but I think you're right. Like there's, there's this, there's this questionableness, but also like in doing the spell, you know, Giles said he doesn't know like what form, like there, there's no way to tell what form the spell will reveal to you what the magic is. So maybe, maybe it's not that Dawn isn't really there, but this is just the way that spell is noting that, Hey, look, there's some magic going on around her. Right. Yeah. Like, so, so that's not to say that Dawn is or isn't there or is or isn't human. It's just saying that there's definitely something magical going on. And I think, the other important thing is to note that there isn't anything magical going on with Joyce. Right. And right. that, and that, that was what Buffy was initially worried about. Now, right. how does that, you know, all of that reflect later, both, you know, is Dawn really human? Is Joyce, is something else going on with her? Like, mm-hmm. we don't know, you know, what exactly all of that is. Yeah, but I think that's definitely where we need to be asking the questions. Yeah, and... and sorry, no, you can... Finish. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say that with the... I like that comparison with, like, the Amy pregnancy thing. But the thing that um, I kind of thought of it, and maybe this is right or wrong, or maybe we need to watch more and think about it, is um, with Dawn being there and not there, I didn't connect that so much to her humanity as much as in a kind of Doctor Who-ish way to these sort of alternate timelines. Like you have those lines about, mm. you know, it happened and I remember it both ways, you know? Um, right. It seems to me that that's kind of what it's getting at is that this time has been rewritten, I guess. Um, and it happened yeah. and it happened both ways. And so there's one life in which Buffy was an only child and there's one life in which she had another little sister. And in you know that they're both true in a way um now i guess you could it could mean other well, things I, too but that was kind of what struck me at first anyway and and i think the important thing is that that's that both of those like both of those i think are tied together like dawn's right. humanness yes is like whether you, or not you, she's there is you would yeah. suddenly notice if there was just like this person who didn't yes. exist anymore but in addition to that you know, Buffy even says, my memories, my mom's, and the monk replies, we built them. Mm-hmm. You know, so there is this idea of, like, they are, like, the monk admits, they're false memories. We yeah. created them yeah. and gave them to you, yeah. you know, along with Don. But as we've said before, in particular to Doctor Who, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, I kept thinking about all of this <laughs> while we were talking about you know, memories and, and right. Right. Memories are everything. Yeah. What makes you who you are. And a big part of that is your memory. And, and so this is like, you know, when it gets down to it, you know, I don't, there's still an aspect of regardless of who Don is, Buffy still remembers her. Mm hmm as her sister. And there's that moment of like, and, and like, even going back to the beginning where Joyce is like, I always used to call you, you know, whatever the nickname is that she used to give Don. Mm -hmm. 
And Buffy's like, did you have a nickname for me? No, we didn't. But then it's like, well, actually, neither did you have a nickname for Don. But you right. remember having a nickname for Don. And so there's this, there's this idea of Buffy still remembers Don being her sister, even though mm-hmm. she intellectually sort of knows now that Don never was her sister. And so... Yeah. Anyway, right. like, it's just that... It's like a that, weird thing of... So, like there's that so mo- if we say of Joyce, okay, Dawn never existed before, however many weeks ago, and so therefore Joyce only ever had one daughter. And so Joyce says, you know, I had this nickname for Dawn, but didn't ever have a nickname for Buffy. <laughs> Is Joyce's falsely remembered, um, are Joyce's false memories more real than a misremembered reality? <laughs> like, if that makes any sense. Right. like. Which is more important, the thing you remember or what actually happened? Is there a difference? Does it matter? Is one more especially true than the other? Um, you know, especially since, like, I don't, I mean, you know, so there's, there's the aspect of, do you, will remembering differently change anything? Right. Um, you know, now in Doctor Who, that is actually how it mm-hmm. happens with, you know, Amy at the end. I remember, you know, something old, something new. Right. All that. I missed, I did the thing wrong. But anyway, uh, you know, all, all of that, <coughs> excuse me, uh, where, you know, memories do matter as far as what you remember, as far mm-hmm. as bringing things back. Now, yeah. Buffy realizes, but she's still remembering how Don was. And so, and there's even that little moment where they go into Don room, Don's room and Buffy is like trying to apologize and Don, and Don is being a little sister mm-hmm. and a, kind of a jerk but mm-hmm. understandably too given the way that Buffy sort of treated her and Buffy says you know you can't even take an apology you always do that ever since and then she kind of stops herself and yeah. is like wait a minute no, no not ever since because so even even her instinct is to remember she does remember yeah. she has those memories but like now she's aware she's aware that the memories aren't real and so how does that affect things and it seems like at the end that buffy actually is heeding what the monk wants to mm-hmm. say you know don needs protection and so she at least is there yeah and what's really you know i mean sort of the crowning moment is of course is at the end there where don is asking what's wrong with mom because don has no idea Right. That anything she remembers and all she knows is that her mom is sick. And that's what, mm. you know, Buffy is kind of responding to there at the end. Right. So. Well, and, and interesting that, and I think sad, but kind of true and poignant that like, it's not until she knows that Dawn isn't her sister, that Buffy is the most sisterly and affectionate, you know, like. And compassionate. Yes, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, which. You know, I think makes sense just from a human point of view of people just, you know, take, taking for granted the people closest to them. That also kind of, kind of makes a narrative sense. In a, in, if, you, if you kind of grant the idea that Dawn wasn't there until recently, it sort of makes sense that Buffy would maybe subconsciously treat her, you know, kind of strange in the beginning of, you know, she may not... She may have these memories, but maybe there's also this sense of, you know, mm. she really wishes she didn't have a sister. She feels like she shouldn't, you know. She's angry about it and doesn't know why. 
Um, but, but yeah, then kind of this, that knowledge that, you know, she is here and can't help it and doesn't know what's going on. And she's not there, you know, there's that kind of moment where Buffy suspects her of being the thing that's hurting her mom, mm. you know, but I think by the end realizes that the two are incidental, maybe. I mean, I don't know. There could still be some, I still wonder if there's some connection because it is interesting that you have all this stuff about like heads and, you know, minds going on that like, you know, mm. like you have glory, you know, zapping the guy's head with energy and you have people going crazy um, and you have people's memories being changed and you have Joyce with these headaches. Right. So even though the spell doesn't reveal any magic around Joyce, it's still like maybe there could be some sort of connection between all these head yeah. things going on. I don't know. And, and don't forget when when Joyce first fell that you know last episode, right? Right. She that said, she was like she said, "Who are you?" you? Are, to yeah, Dawn, yeah. like as though there might, right? Like she, she might also clarity, have recognized yeah. something. In that. Although she doesn't seem to remember that now, there was right. this moment of right before she fell, of her not recognizing Dawn. Now, but again, is that... Right, that could just be... A magical be, thing? Or right, is that a physiological, a physiological thing, thing? Because she was having some kind of stroke Confused, or right. Whatever, like, yeah, there there might have been a... I mean, that, that happens with people when they have medical problems now, is they don't access their memories properly, or they don't, you know, yeah. see straight, or think that, you know may misidentify someone or that kind of thing. Like that right. certainly happens just well, and that's with sort kind of mundane of, medical problems. And that's the chilling kind of thing at the end is, you know, the whole episode is about let's do this spell to find out what magic is being used on Joyce. And Buffy's very certain that she's going to find something. Um, and she does find something, just not what she thinks. But then right. that kind of what's wrong with mom, we still don't know, you know, and that kind of, yeah frustration of like you know Buffy and the audience were so sure that by the end of this episode we're gonna know and we're gonna like kick its butt but um you know so not only is you know the villain got away so nobody's butt got kicked but also we still don't really have an explanation and it could be anything um so mm. yep yep so, okay, before we move into any of the other characters, though, what about the title, No Place Like Home? Because I feel like, obviously, that's more going to be more relevant to Buffy and Joyce and Dawn than sure. any of the others. Sure. Uh, well, there's the what, kind of... What are your thoughts? Well, there? there's there's kind of a joke of it, of no place, like, no place, their home doesn't exist in the sense of this home that they remember isn't real in the sense of you know the monks put it there falsely um so home is kind of no place in a way i guess um but um yeah i mean i i don't know maybe i want to hear your thoughts on it but i i mean just kind of the nostalgia of that idea um you know i think that's kind of what buffy is having to deal with is this idea of home and maybe having to revise 
in light of new information, what she thinks of as home. You know, maybe she needs to include Dawn in, you know, this concept. Um, and, you know, just her fear for her mom, I think, and her lack of control over the situation. Um, but I don't know. I don't have any specifically Wizard of Ozzy things, which I was wondering if there would be. Fair enough. I don't. I don't know that I do either. Okay. So I'm kind of hoping you had more. <laughs> um, unless, I mean, unless it's I mean, Glory, because she kind of wants to get home to her. You know, like there's. I could see her as kind of a. a slightly cracked Dorothy who's trying to get back to her real dimension. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know other than so there is sort of a sense like in the beginning of the episode that like Buffy feels kind of out of place mm -hmm. at home and so when she returns you know, like we talked about like there's this this idea of you know, her sort of reconciling with Don in a way mm -hmm. um but yeah I don't I don't know that I have any particular guesses either so I, I was just curious what the thing was um yeah obviously the the titles reference to Wizard of Oz but I don't know that there's any other particular references that I found mm -hmm. um unless unless you count Giles in a wizard costume <laughs> <laughs> uh, right <laughs> Uh, so maybe let's talk about that. <laughs> um, and, yeah. Yeah. That, well, and it's not just the wizard costume. It's the look on his face. It's that kind of head, you know, kind of cocked to the side, little goofy smile that he has. Like, I don't know what he, what scenario he had built up in his mind of what kind of reaction he was going to get from Buffy. But he's met with this sort of, silence and he just sort of right shamefully takes it off you know and puts it away like that was a failed experiment so yeah that was one of the funniest moments i think of the series so far um yeah so i guess to finish with uh giles um we get the kind of big grand opening of his magic shop finally. And I like how mm -hmm. kind of the, the, the stages and of his coming to terms with, with that of kind of the disappointment of no one being there. And then his sort of right. um, glee, you know, describing to Willow, Oh, they came and they, they, they took things and gave me money and it was great. Um, mm -hmm. And then by the time Xander gets there, it's, there's people and they all seem to want things. <laughs> it's right. like, yes, that's, that is how retail works, Giles. They're, they right. do want things. Um, so like the kind of roller coaster of his emotional response to finally having this place open is pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. His, his standing there is great. And, and yeah, I mean, it is that, it is that thing of like, you've done this, you know, 
what you feel is like this momentous thing and like nobody else even cares. Yeah. Like All right. Which yeah. I mean honestly let's let's face it like how many people did actually like you never saw anyone else in the magic shop when like they just went to go buy stuff there. Like, you know, right, right. we see like Willow go in there a couple times and like when the owner is not dead uh, or, you know, recently attacked. Yeah. There's rarely any other customers like in the store itself. So right. it's not like right. any it's not rational. It's going to be like Black Friday. He's imagining yeah. this like swarm. Especially at like nine o'clock on a weekday, you know, like <laughs> right. you're just not going to do that. Um, the, uh, I don't. I can't remember. Have we gotten the name of the store yet? Do you remember? Uh, they, you know what? They showed it, but I can't remember what it is now. The the magic box. That's is, right. That's right. Is the name of it. Um, I just couldn't remember if they had actually mentioned it yet, and I'm trying to. I was I trying think to they remember. showed a. They showed the sign. Okay. Um. So yeah, and and obviously there's there's a. Uh, you know, later the, the, the pace picks up a bit. And so we get, um, you know, we get, we get Anya sort of being, yeah. uh, now we've gotten, we've gotten Anya sort of, I, you know, sort of her, the idea of her love for capitalism before, like Uh when Xander sort of explained, you know, I sell these and get money and buy you nice things. Like this is how it works. Right. And now she, she wants to trade him her, plastic children for cash and all that. Right, kind of right, right. Right. That sort of starts like a cascade of, right. you know, things. So like, um, we also discussed before how like, we, we're not really sure how Anya is able to have like her own apartment and right, stuff. Right. And however she was able to do that, it seems to be running out. Yeah. Um, Cause we get sort of explicit references here to, I've never needed to like buy things and deal with money and stuff before. Um, so kind of fortuitous. She also seems to like it though. Mm. Like, you know, she's at the cash register and like sort of giving Giles like tips. Here's and, how you yeah. could do things, you know. Right. And you... and not just enjoy the being the salesperson, but like have ideas about how to like increase profit and like mm-hmm. you know, like actually has like strategy and business ideas and everything. Right. And and wants to wrap properly for Willow. Um like it's she has to sort of present it well too, which I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure I've wrapped things about as well as that in retail stores. So yeah, um, right. So yeah, no, that's all very funny. And then so then you know him kind of Anya like interrupting her flow of ideas to offer her a job um, was good. So yeah, good for her to if she didn't have a have something to do before now she has this. Um, so, oh, and her, well, her customer service thing of, you know, please go. <laughs> hey, you, have a nice day. Right. Um, and Xander's explanation of, it's insincere, but it's, it's something we've all agreed on. So you have to sort of play the game and be cheerfully insincere to your customers. Um, mm. Very funny. I don't really have anything else for Xander. Um, I don't know if you did for. No. For for Willow, really. for Willow, I guess. Um, 
once again, this kind of connection and sympathy that she has for Dawn, um, mm. because she's a spaz. <laughs> but, like, again, uh, I think it's Willow's sort of sensitivity and also her kind of... Willow's always going to feel for the ones who feel kind of insecure and maybe, you know, a bit marginalized and not confident, all these things. Um, mm -hmm. She just has kind of, you know, uh, compassion for people like that. So you get her kind of intuitively being a little bit more understanding than Buffy. Um, yeah. But... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I mean, there isn't a lot with the other Scoobies in this episode, so I don't know that there's much more to say, honestly. Okay, um, um, well, actually, we kind of skipped over in the last couple minutes. Um, we just get quick scenes with Riley and Spike, too. Mm. Um, with Riley, I guess, he seems to be in a better place than he was uh, last time, not quite as... Um, you know, insecure as he was feeling recently. Although there's still kind of the digs about, um, you know, Dawn kind of blabs about, you know, right. you, you, you're cute when you're weak and kitteny, which is probably not what Riley needs to hear right now. Um, right. And he kind of, but at least he kind of jokes about it later. Like he's sort of getting over it a little bit. Like he's understanding he's not taking that too seriously. He's understanding more what Buffy means. He understands why she just wants to protect him, you know, and mm. at least he says, um, you know, he's feeling better. And how about we just look out for each other rather than, you know, making it all about protecting poor, weak, kidney Riley. So. Right. Right. Yeah, he's still not... I mean, he's he is better, but yeah, you can tell sort of in some of those moments uh, that he's still kind of like wincing a little bit or like, yeah, you know, kind of like, all right, let's move on. Let's <laughs> move to a different topic of conversation. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would agree with you. Like, it, it's not like... Like, he, he's sort of getting over it versus, you know... Over it, yeah. 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 Um, but he's, he's moving. He's progressing. And then um, for Spike. <laughs> um, yeah. Not too much new, but just this kind of lurking outside of her, you know, house. Which, you know, of course she's annoyed at, but doesn't necessarily understand the real full significance of that. Um, so, and I like his kind of line of... Although, although she does notice that there are multiple cigarettes... Right, she does see that, there, yeah. So. Right, and it does register her to her as weird, as like, why are yeah. you just hanging out here for no reason? Um, and, you know, again, that kind of uh, teasing and mean thing that, that masks other kinds of feelings underneath. So, like, you know, um, what does he say? I never really liked you anyway, and you have stupid hair. So, like... Right. You know, kind of hinting that maybe he thinks the opposite. Um, <laughs> so, you know, kind of, it, they don't really go explicitly to 
the things that are changing with Spike, but um, at least it kind of, for the audience that has been watching, it sort of hints at that. Yeah, you're right. Considering the last time we saw him was waking up from a dream, you know, a sexualized dream about Buffy. Right. So right. Uh, definitely, definitely some weird stuff going on here. And, and, and the continued, it's like, how much further down can Spike continue to spiral? Because <laughs> this is like, right. like, okay, in a certain sense, like, you know, predatory vampire is already a stalker. But this is like the most pathetic kind of stalker there is, right. you know, of the pining and not able to admit what you're doing. Right. Clearly acting kind of weird and almost peeping Tomish, right. you know, well, like it's a perfectly mundane kind of stalking. Like there's nothing he has no villain agenda. There's nothing magical going on. He's not even going to like attack or bite anyone. It's just right. Literally just you know, hanging out outside her house, like right. something any normal creeper could do. And so. and even even less so because he can't like you know even a normal creeper could potentially go into the house and do something right. Weird that's true. Creepy. <laughs> that's he true. can't even do that much. No. Like so, true. there's like an impotent factor to it as well. Right. And and so yeah, like it, it's just like this continued, you know, ever since season two he just has continued to go down how down much, down and further you know descent into maelstrom kind of thing right how much uh, lower can he go so yeah there's this who knows maybe we'll see <laughs> um and and so we get another reference to his former name uh buffy calls him william right uh which <laughs> the last time um the last time he was called that by Buffy was uh, in the episode something blue. So there's also sort of a veiled right. hint there because that's when they were sort of under the spell and had romantic right. feelings for each other. Uh, not that that's like super important, but it's just kind of interesting that that's the last time she called him William. And, and now here she is calling him William again. Right. Um, An interesting little motif. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of course, William the Bloody was his right. Was his, his actual serial killer nickname. name? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it was a, a former name. We'll, we'll actually at some point get more history about his name. But uh, anyway, um, the um, the I I do want to mention also because it's a line I've seen out of context many times is the out for a walk bitch. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It is it is an oft-quoted line for Spike. Yeah. Kind of just one of those, like, yeah. I There's not even, like, like the, there's no need for it. No. <laughs> there's, well, just, just, he has to just fill that fifth word. Right, right. <laughs> um, and do it as insultingly as possible. Right. Um, so, yeah. Um, no, yeah, I mean... Again, if you have to explain it, it's not funny. So it's, uh, it was, I laughed. So I guess we'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. um, okay, well, I think that covered everything I had, unless there's any big things that we missed. Yeah, no, I think that, that hits a lot of stuff. I mean, definitely sort of an important uh, episode, sort of myth logically and for the seasonal arcs and stuff yeah um and but i think we covered 
pretty much everything and will be uh, interesting to see where we go from here. I mm. guess. How much lower so, can Spike go? That's the question. Yeah, yeah. And and also, what else can we learn about Dawn and Glory? I guess that too. All yeah. of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe a little bit about some of that. So, on to Doctor Who. So, this is the last of the of the Doctor yes. series, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is true. And everything ends sooner than you think. Yeah. Uh, Except to you. Except the right, doctor. Well, well or that's he? sort of that's sort of the question, right? So here, I mean, you know, again, there's sort of obviously with my experience because I know there's a new season coming. But even yeah. at the time, people knew there was another doctor coming. Yes. So there's always sort of a with things like that. There's always sort of a weird dichotomy between. Obviously, you're still feeling bad about, you know, Matt Smith's time coming to an end as the 11th Doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the end of the 11th Doctor, specifically, like we've talked about how before regenerations uh, are themselves kind of deaths in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, uh-huh. <laughs> there's that there's that meta-textual knowledge of yeah. knowing that there's more coming and mm-hmm. even knowing, you know, perhaps not everyone did, but right. m- many people knew that it would be Peter Capaldi and, and right. you know, who was coming next. So that, that I, you know, maybe we don't need to talk about all the regeneration stuff. I actually want to talk about a lot of that at the end. But yeah. I was sort of predicting that this would be where it was. I mm-hmm. wasn't entirely sure. Mm-hmm. I thought it could be at the beginning of, like, the next season. Mm-hmm. Um, or the regeneration occurred, but I was certainly as the episode goes on and they're talking about, oh, everything ends, mm-hmm. and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, that sort of, that sort of stuff popped up. And especially once you start realizing, like, they're revisiting a lot of stuff from yes. the Matt Smith era. So, yeah. I mean, Trends Lore obviously just happened relatively recently, so we know kind of what that means and... Um, you know, the earlier stuff with, like, Gallifrey and all that. So, um, you know, I like the episode, but there is always that, like, little bit of, like, okay, you know it's coming. And not that that... Right. I mean, not that that changes anything about the episode or the story or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just one of those things where it's, like... Yeah. Well, I think but, that's... It, it's interesting because... It kind of puts to the test, um, in a strange way, I think, the theory of, like, we, I think we've talked about a couple times, this, the C.S. Lewis theory of surprisingness being more important than the surprise. And mm-hmm. usually I feel like we talk about that in the sense of, like, rereading or reviewing something. That, like, the idea that... Um, if something is good, it shouldn't matter if you've, and if you're so inclined, if you're the kind of person who likes to reread something, some people don't, but um, it not being a big deal to have, to, you should get as much or more out of the second 
or subsequent viewings as you did on the first one because the point of the story isn't the twist or the reveal or at least it's not the point of it isn't to kind of shock you with oh my gosh i didn't see that coming that yes that's what it does the first time but that if it's well done on subsequent viewings i think the enjoyment of watching it happen is as much of a pleasure as the first time you know because you can kind of lewis talks about how rather than like taking you off the cliff you're able to admire like oh look how the writer you know uh su successfully diverts your attention over here so you veer off in this direction when he wants you to and you kind of are more into the craft of it than you know just i guess the first viewing is more about just the visceral story mm -hmm. aspect and what's interesting sure. about this and i think this show is that it kind of forces you to do that even on the first viewing because <laughs> it's like even though part of even though you're watching a story for the first time and you've never seen it before and you don't know where it's going at the back of your head you have this thing going i know the show's not over i know there's another season i know there's another doctor you know so even if he looks like he might die or he might regenerate or maybe he's run out of regenerations you're never really able to fully you know believe it from like a you know primary world point of view of oh my god it's the last episode you know what if he doesn't make it out of this um mm. which i think is interesting so it kind of it forces you to like i don't know it forces you to have to read the story differently because you know it can't end here um sure so you know i think and it 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 kind of puts it to a weird test, and I think this that makes the episode either work for you or not, you know, because I'm sure that for some people, knowing that Peter Capaldi's coming, you know, gets in the way of the mystery of what if he runs out of regenerations, you know? Right. Um, but maybe there are other things to enjoy that aren't just the, the visceral thrill of, oh my God, what if he runs out of regenerations? Um, so sure. it's kind of an interesting... It's risky, but I think it's kind of interesting. And and some of that, too, is, is interesting because I think that's a fundamental difference. One of the fundamental differences between mm -hmm. British and American mm -hmm. television production. Mm -hmm. And even just like when you know whether a show is going to be renewed or not, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times... It seems like, and, and not that I'm an expert on British like television production or American television production, for that matter, but a lot of times it seems like writers for American shows are sort of forced to write seasons that are, especially if like you're a couple seasons in mm -hmm. already and, and maybe the ratings aren't the best and, you know, like that kind of thing. Like maybe there's, you're sort of forced to, to write an ending to a season that also works as an ending to a series. Right. Just in case, yeah. just in case it doesn't come back or, or maybe, yeah. Like, so like, and there are plenty of shows that like, don't get announced until after their sort of season finale of whether they're coming back or not. Yeah. At least in the U S. So, I mean, that might just be a fundamental difference between that. And given that new who has been very extremely popular for a lot of its run of, you know, mm -hmm throughout 
throughout its run. Um, maybe that's a big difference is they don't have to worry about, you know, writing an ending. And also because like, Hey, you can write an ending and that doesn't mean that in 20 years, Dr. Who won't get picked up again. Right. And the story will continue. Right. Like there's always the possibility that Dr. Who will be continued somewhere at some time in some way, in some medium, right? you know, and I think Wherever. that's what it's getting at in the line about, because I think in New Who, anyway, the kind of everything ends is sort of one of the oldest statements of the series. But Clara's, sure. her, Clara's response, except you, that's the kind of metatextual, okay, we're talking about the show now. Like, yeah. yes, we're talking about the Doctor, but we're talking about the story. Like, any finale won't be a real finale because... It, again, it could and probably will always be picked up by somebody in some form. And the format means that you can do that because it doesn't have to end. He doesn't have to die. And you can even kind of see Moffat here. We're jumping ahead. We shouldn't talk about like the regeneration limit and everything. But the way he no. kind of casually throws that out the window, like, <laughs> like, you thought this was going to be an issue years from now. Let me just, like, get rid of it now. And now we don't even have to worry about it anymore. Like, now it's just smooth sailing for as far as the eye can see, you know. Um, anyway, yeah. we can talk about that more later, but... Yeah, so let's... You you had some production notes, so let's... Oh, yes. Start there. Okay. 13 minutes into yeah. the hour. <laughs> All right. Um, um, so just a few production notes. Matt Smith who I'm sure we'll talk about uh, quite a bit this episode, um, had a nomination um, for a Constellation Award for this episode. Um, I think I mentioned before that this did set a new viewing record on BBC America after the Day of the Doctor. So again, just getting bigger in the States and everything, um, post the 50th anniversary. Um, and I do want to point out, this is kind of a stupid production note, but we can talk about the joke about the wig and uh, Matt Smith's shaved head. Um, but both Matt Smith and Karen Gillan had shaved heads at this point because they had done some movies in which they had to shave their heads. So just an yeah. interesting thing to note that when you see the Doctor and Amy together, they're both wearing wigs. Um, mm -hmm. And, I mean, that kind of explains why you have the whole TARDIS, or, uh, the TARDIS key and the quiff routine and all that um, right, right. kind of playing with, with the fact that Matt was wearing a wig through the whole episode. but So so I know Karen Gillan was in Guardians, Guardians of, the of the Galaxy. Galaxy. Matt Smith what was did Matt a, Smith? A, a movie called Lost River, which was um, mm. Ryan Gosling's first, his directorial debut, which okay. I don't think it's even been released in the United States. I think it went to the Cannes Film Festival, I think, and got panned. Um, mm. And so it's had a kind of stuttering release like it, it wasn't released in as many countries as I think they thought it would be or maybe it's only on DVD or certain things so um probably oh, yeah. probably worth checking out but was not well received critically 29% on uh Rotten Tomatoes, Rotten Tomatoes. Or... yeah um I'm, and even the audience was is only forty two percent. Right, so. right. Um, which which the audience tends to usually be a little be more, more forgiving. Positive, yeah, <laughs> and um, Christina Hendricks is in it too, so there's a oh yeah, Whedon-y connection there. But um, I'm sure it's worth 
worth finding. Um, and actually, Matt Smith got the role because of Doctor Who, because I think he Brian Gosling wanted someone of a certain type, and he was flipping through the TV and saw his scene of in the Pandorica opens the one of where he's like standing talking to all the aliens about like you know hello Stonehenge like doing his kind of like radio DJ thing yeah and yeah. he was kind of like hmm that guy so yeah kind of a funny little side note but um yes he did have his head shaved for that so I guess he filmed that after the 50th anniversary and then came back to do his last episode so um so they had to had to wig him um because you can't have the 11th doctor without the kind of quiff um so sure yeah that's it for my production notes so sure well i wanted to start um just talking about kind of the setting and and i guess how the setting sort of progresses like I, I don't know if we can do it like really independent of the story, yeah. but at least maybe talk about the aspect of like the planet of Trenzalor, yeah. uh, which is sort of confused with Gallifrey at first. And then like specifically the town of Christmas and then talk about like the papal mainframe and the blockade and, uh-huh. and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so, so we kind of start off with the doctor responding to this message about that there's these this message sort of being sent out to everyone yeah um and he keeps sort of running into his you know different of his enemies you know the standard the daleks and there's Mm -hmm. the cybermen and uh all these various enemies of his who have sort of gathered um (laughs) i wasn't expecting a cyberhead uh, to sort of be his companion there at the beginning, right. um, ha- handles. Yeah, his sort of him. Wilson. <laughs> um, yeah, kind of in a way, um, and you know, so I mean, not that like this is like we've talked about how Clara is sort of someone who isn't constantly with the Doctor like mm-hmm. some of his other companions have been. So he's, um, you know, he's kind of traveling around without her while she's doing other things, you know, at home. Um, and that's fine. Uh, but so, yeah, so he's kind of investigating, I guess, this signal, um, that's being sent out. And we, we come to find out that, um, at first he thinks or at least handles tells him Mm -hmm. that it's Gallifrey. Mm -hmm. And so of course, coming right off of day of the doctor where, you know, he just, with the help of the other versions of himself, um, you know, put Gallifrey in to this like stasis mm-hmm. slash instant pocket universe thing or whatever you want to call it. Um, separating it, I guess out from our own universe. So that's like, he, he's convinced that that can't actually be the case. Mm-hmm. And of course it turns out not to be, um, yeah, well, you even kind of get his a little bit of anger that that handles would yeah. even suggest that, like, kind of how da- how dare you, um, right? You know that, which kind of suggests something interesting. Like, if he even found Gallifrey, what would be his reaction to it? Um, but I guess well, that's and a he question seems to be another day. But he seems to be convinced based on the fact that he grew up there and, and he would recognize recognize it, yeah. it and all of that. And this place seems not to be 
Um, we also get sort of in the mix uh, this papal mainframe thing, mm-hmm. which is which we find out is what's sort of keeping all of the Doctor's enemies at bay, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there is reference to the fact that they could sort of overwhelm mm-hmm. uh, the mainframe's blockade or, or you know protection of the planet, but that, what do they say, nobody wants to go first because they know that they'll sort of have to face the rage of the Doctor, which is... So, again, we have a situation. You just mentioned the Pandorica a minute ago. Yeah. Again, we have a situation where you have all of the Doctor's enemies sort of yeah. banding together yeah. uh, to attack. Not him specifically at first, mm-hmm. um, but the the Gallifrey that's coming through. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like with, um, with a regeneration story, you always get kind of those echoes back to, like, you know, things that are specific to this doctor, like little themes and ideas that are kind of unique to him. And um, that's kind of one of those ones, I feel like, is this doctor is often, up, more so than the other ones we've seen, I think, up against every enemy ever, you know? So, like, mm. you know, whether it's kind of with the Pandorica or then, you know, when a good man goes to war, he's sort of, you know blowing up Cybermen and defeating monks and all like, you know, you kind of have him. It's like one against all, like many, all of them. That seems to be like kind of an 11th doctor thing. Um, So kind of fitting that it would sort of end there, I think. Um, But I like the follow up to when she says, nobody wants to be the first to go. And he says, I do. <laughs> like right. he's just desperate to be the first one. So you also kind of get his eagerness there too. Right. To, to take on every bad guy ever. Like that's something he is sort of in his element there. Um, yeah. Uh, and he gets his chance. Yep. His, his long extended chance. Um, so we get this papal mainframe, uh, which we did look up, and and I was right mm-hmm. that we do we did have one previous reference to it in A Good Man Goes to War, mm-hmm. like you just sort of mentioned. So there's another link to that one there. Yeah. Um. They're just a very brief reference, and it and it's not quite clear that it's like they almost make it sound like a person, mm-hmm. whereas here it's more of a place slash office. Mm-hmm. Uh. And the person is the Mother Superior, uh, Tasha Lem. Mm. Um, so this is so I I take it that this is completely just an Eleventh Doctor thing. Like like other than a good man goes to war. Like we don't have any. There's no classic references. There's no. I don't think so. Like other no areas where we have it. So um, of course we get sort of the funny oddity of like him preparing to go to church by being naked yeah. and um, sort of the havoc that reeks with Christmas dinner. Uh, the momentary. I, havoc yeah. is too strong of a word. The, 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 the confusion the by some. Caused, the, yeah. the, 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 the delight by grandma. Yeah, anybody? Uh, are we playing Twister? Um. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, just the idea that, that there's this church and we come to find out uh, is what basically creates this movement of the silence mm-hmm. um, that we then learn also like, it's not the same 
silence that we know and you know which we saw the doctor and Mm -hmm. amy and rory and you know sort of fighting uh previously but that that it's that's actually like a breakaway sect right you know like there's a schism in the church and like you know there's like one set that believes that they should stay and sort of fight and stand beside the doctor but then there's like this whole other sect that travels back into time to sort of try to stop the doctor Mm -hmm. from ever going to Trenzalore, um, knowing what's going to happen or believing they know what's going to happen, which turns out to be changed, um, in the end. So, and yeah, I mean, you get, again, just like bringing all the enemies together. It's like, it is wrapping up, I think pretty much every 11th doctor mystery that we still have, Mm -hmm. you know, in one episode, um, you know, so yeah, totally getting the origin story of the silence as this sort of one of the first things we learned about them was that they were more of a religious movement than a species. You know, so you mm. find out that the the beings themselves are these genetically engineered priests. So it's not so the silence is more the schism that you mentioned, that kind of subset right. of the papal mainframe. Um which took a more kind of militaristic view, I guess, rather than keep the peace, you know, by standing in the yeah. way. Although we see some of these supposed priests well, fighting here beside the doctor. That's true. As well. So not completely pacifistic, but at least they are. Oh, sorry, stuff is falling over. Um, wind came in and blew my uh, blew my bottle over. Um, rather than. I agree. They're not completely pacifist, but at least they are fighting to keep peace in the sense of keeping the Daleks away from the planet. Um, whereas this branch that breaks away, they kind of determine, well, the doctor's really the problem here. Um, and so clearly the the solution is to, if we can just get rid of the doctor and keep him from coming to Trenzalore, that this will solve everything. So the origin of, of the prophecy of the first question. Um, right. And, right. and very similar and, to the Pandorica too, of, of same thing there where the enemies were, we're afraid of what's in, you know, we're afraid of the, the, what's going to blow up the universe, put the doctor in the box. Well, <laughs> that kind of co- ends up causing the problem rather than solving right. it. Um, and same thing here. We even kind of find out that they're, they tried to blow up the TARDIS, which is how the cracks got in the universe in the first place. So, sure, um, sure. you know, again, just sort of bringing all those threads back together um, and tying them into Trenzalore, which I didn't, I don't think I really expected when I first saw the episode was that, um, that the first question in Trenzalore and the silence and the cracks would all kind of, I think Moffat does a fairly good job of, putting them into a coherent whole. Um. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and this idea that there's this event here that's happening throughout all space and time, which is kind of true because only it turns out to be the cracks and not the doctor's grave, you know, kind of thing. So that there's this, there is a continuity, even though there's sort of a slight twist or, Mm -hmm. or change to how it actually plays out. Um, and also with regard to, you know, the the 
fighting priests. I mean, it's not like the Catholic Church or even other churches haven't had, you know, right. warring histories themselves well, we've had at times. The bits of um, the bits of these this church that we've seen before, like of the papal mainframe or the Church of the Silence or whatever, have been militaristic. That you had the soldier, you know. Like, remembering a good man goes to war or the time of angels. You have, you know, it's yeah. it's the 51st century. The church has moved on. Like, you know, it's all these kind of cleric soldiers um, that yeah. those two things seem to sort of, in this particular religion, they seem to go together. Um, so yeah. they're not shy about getting mixed up in the fight, I guess. Sure. Sure. Um, um bef- I, I don't I also want to mention Tasha Lem because it doesn't go anywhere and as far as I know there's no plans to bring her back although who knows but um there's a quite popular and kind of convincing fan theory that she has some connection to River Song um Lem being kind of similar to Mel is one thing um but I think more than more than just that is she seems to play a role that you could easily see River playing. Like, you know, it wouldn't take too much changes to fit River into the story. So you have, like, this kind of flirtatious but combative banter with the doctor. And, you know, he seems kind of familiar with her. He kisses her. He talks about... He calls River a psychopath, and then a couple minutes later calls Tasha a psychopath pretty explicitly. Um, and then you see Tasha flying the TARDIS, too. Um, so, again, whether that ever goes anywhere, I don't know. I mean, I, there's all sorts of stuff you can find about people making that work, like maybe River in the library, like maybe the library becomes the papal mainframe, and she's like, the I, like there's... You can go as far as you want with it, but, um, you know, in case that ever goes anywhere, I think it's worth mentioning. And I think it did kind of strike a lot of people at the time, kind of, you know, feeling like, is it going to be revealed that this is River and, you know, so we'll see. I don't know whether that struck any of you on your viewing, but... Um. I did. No- I mean, I did notice a few. I-, I did notice when he called her psychopath, and of course, she's flying the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's references to there being more of a relationship there than sort of meets the eye. Right. Um, I don't know that I would have put all that together to say that she is there for a River Song because. One, we sort of see both ends of River Song's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, I don't know that I... I don't know that even Moffat would turn River Song into a Dalek. <laughs> uh, even even to the point where, like, she can overcome the instinct right. of being right. the Dalek. Like, I, I feel like even that in its, it is, like, one step too far for her. Moffat. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I could be wrong. Fair enough. The the Lem is Mel. Okay, that's fine. But what about the Tasha? Like, mm-hmm. like I feel like 
if you're going to go through the trouble of River Song and Melody Pond, like having both names sort of, you know, have a connection there, then right. where, why only one of those names for Tasha Lem? Mm-hmm. Um, other, other than sort of, okay, it's two syllable word followed by a one syllable word, just like River Song is mm-hmm. Tasha Lem. Like, it, you know, the, the meter is the same as far as that goes, but I still don't think that that's enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I would tend to think, like, for me, the sort of way I would explain it, if it needs explaining, mm-hmm. would be to say something along the lines of, clearly, this doctor is attracted to women of a certain type. Right, the doctor has and, a type, yeah. And and so that that, that would be closer to mm-hmm. uh, an explanation than to say that this is River Song. I, I, I mean, <laughs> knowing that we're coming up to the discussion about regeneration and basically throwing out science as we know it in Doctor Who's universe, mm-hmm. not that that's the first time we've ever thrown out science as we know it in the Doctor Who universe, um, we seem to get a pretty solid, this is the end of River Song mm-hmm. in silence, well, is it silence in the library or whatever the second part of that is, yeah. um, the the that seems to be like like not even just in that episode but later yeah in we in get name we of get the doctor yeah we get the references to like this is where it's leading to like yeah. we know like like yeah like even like yeah her um, kind of finally yeah, yeah, right, saying goodbye right his name of the doctor yeah. which is which ends up in Trenzalore where we have River Song saying oh yeah by the way I'm actually dead in this <laughs> thing far away so like yeah. Right. No, it does seem I, I, like I feel an ending like for the character. As far yeah. as as definitive as Doctor Who is willing to be, right. like River Song kind of is. You know, not to say that we won't ever see River Song again, because we can get the Doctor crossing her time stream in different areas. Like that's right. that's not a problem. But to say that this is Tasha Lem would have to be right. like we've already seen. You'd have her, to go beyond. We, we've seen story, her yeah. regenerations pretty much through from a little girl, she regenerates into Mel, mm-hmm. who grows up with Amy and then regenerates into River Song. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, like, like I feel like there's... Yeah. We already sort of know her storyline in broad strokes there. Now, we do have a reference here. Mm-hmm. Another, and we'll have, this is the regeneration part, right? We have another reference here of possibly being able to regenerate into a previous Mm -hmm. form. So, and we got that hint at the end of Day of the Doctor Mm -hmm. with the curator. Mm -hmm. Uh, So is it possible that River Song, you know, regenerates into Tasha Lev and back into herself again? I guess. But... We get the explanation that River Song uses up all of her regeneration abilities too. Right. So I don't think that that would actually be possible, unless again sure. you throw out all of science like yeah. they do at the end of this. But I think the implication is that River Song doesn't ever regenerate into something else. No, but that she goes into this computer and is done. So I are there ways potentially that could be explained? Sure. Moffat's a creative guy, but he doesn't give us that explanation. So I guess 
you right. know the fact that he and, the fact that it doesn't ever go though it, it it seems like it could go there and it doesn't seems like right about Th- as much is, of an answer as we're this looking is a, to get but this is a long way of a professor diggory answer basically right without in the absence of other of other evidence we have to believe what's in what front we're of given, us right. and 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 this is this is what we're given that Tasha Lem is not River Song mm-hmm. and that River Song is dead. Right. Though we may meet her again at some point. Right. That's, that's fine. I I'm inclined I, to agree. Just thought I would bring it up. I mean, I I ha- I sort of talked it through because obviously this is the first time I'm like right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would I would be interesting. I would be interested in hearing what uh, others have to say, but also I don't want to. Like I don't know if there's spoilers in that. If you said we never really see Tasha Lem again, so, so far, I mean, not. I've only seen oh, season eight is the only other one which is out at this point. So um, I don't think it's too spoilery to say we haven't had any reference to the character since then. So um, you know, we'll see. Um, probably not, but I suppose I wanted to bring it up in case it ever goes that way someday. Um, okay. I completely forget what we were supposed to be talking about. Uh, well, so we've kind of talked through all the setting and the planet. I mean, so so you have Christmas, which is on Trenzalore, mm-hmm. which has apparently this truth field around it. And and funny that, like, the people know that it's there. Because, like, theoretically you could imagine there being a truth field and people not knowing. Right that there's a truth field there, but they seem to know it's there. It seemed to be okay with it right. or at least, or at least have come. I mean, there is that funny moment of, is, doesn't that make things difficult? And the wife says no. And the, do- and the other guy's like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, he <laughs> and has they're to both be truthful. Being honest. Yeah. Right. Um, but the, uh, yeah, that there's this idea of, of that actually, no, it's kind of good living in this place where everyone has to tell the truth all the mm-hmm. time. Um, and of course, the town is called Christmas, so it's sort of a happy place mm-hmm. and and whatever, except for the fact that it's like menaced by all of these <laughs> it's alien like beings. besieged for hundreds um, of years. Um, but yeah. uh, and and so yeah, so and of course we get Gallifrey sort of trying to break through and mm-hmm. apparently like confusing the readings and broadcasting the signal. Um, I, I, interesting. So again, you get this. Uh, this is the oldest question in the universe, mm-hmm. right? Which of course. Of course, Time Lords would pick, like, a broadband way to, like, broadcast there. Yeah. You know, so it's not just, like, they're they're broadcasting it on every spectrum they can find. It's also throughout every moment of time that they can, you know, broadcast it. Yeah. Uh, you know, so they're... Not known for their subtlety, the Time Lords. No. Uh, you know, so they're doing this. And, of course, what they want is for the Doctor to give his real name, which presumably at least someone... Right, would be able Gallifrey to knows yeah. would they'd be able to verify it, um, and that the, like that this becomes the password. So like that's an interesting. Like I wasn't obviously we've talked about sort of the metatextual mm-hmm. reasons for like Doctor Who, you know, being yeah. sort of the original question and all that. But I, I thought it was a clever way to sort of um, yeah, you're not have, expecting have, have that be you're not expecting so something so literal. I think of like right like. And that makes sense. Like, only the doctor knows his name, so only he can give us the answer to this question. And so. Except that. 
this isn't the first time we've been on Trends Allure and the Doctor has to give his name. Well, that's true. In Name of the Doctor. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't give his name. It's someone else who does. Mm-hmm. And that kind of happens here again. Like, right. again, the Doctor is never, like, giving out his name to right. anyone. Right, right. It turns out to be Clara who doesn't give his name but convinces them that this is the person they're looking yeah yes this is the doctor you're looking for right um (laughs) you you know so and and uh, again reiterating that the doctor's thing of um in the name of the doctor that my name isn't the the point that the name he chose is doctor and that's what's important um which we saw clara say in the 50th of you know, reiterating that, reaffirm that promise to be the doctor and be the healer and kind of her saying, you know, you know, it's him because, you know, he's this person that helps people and saves people and you should help him rather than screw him over. (laughs) Well, and that, and that's the reiteration she has here, right? His name is the doctor, all the name he needs, everything you need to know about him. And if you love him, you should help him. That's what she says. So, like, yeah, this is a reiteration of, of that, definitely, of of he is the doctor. Regardless of what his real name might be, you know him as the doctor, and that's everything that he is. He's here to help and fix things, and and he is. He stays there for a very long time mm-hmm. to do that, 300 years. So I know, I know references to time and age Mm -hmm. with the doctor aren't always but like we're up to something like six or seven hundred years by the end of this episode that he's been around in this yeah right yeah Um, no when you think about how long we had like with the ninth doctor not just in terms of screen time but in terms of like actual life that he lived you realize for the 11th how like much his time dwarfs like pretty much any other you know like again we don't know exactly how long each one lives but this one is old you know like he's been around for a long time i mean so given that like with the ninth doctor i think we get somewhere in there that he's 900 and some years old right like yeah around there i mean we're we're nigh on approaching like just with the 11th doctor that he's like doubled his age almost like, like within a century or two of like doubling, having doubled his age. And a lot of that within a space of like an episode or two. Right. Um, (laughs) Right. Exactly. Like that's, what's shocking about this episode, Um, I think is how it, and that's not including like episodes where he's gone back and rewritten his time. Right. Right. Like, like, uh, you know, like with the whole thing with the silent, you know, the the impossible astronaut and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, where it's like, he, there's a couple hundred years, presumably. Yeah. Again, rule number one: the doctor really lies. Know, yeah. So we don't know actually know how long it is between that, but there's periods there where you could add, easily add a couple hundred yeah. years to like his age in like actual time, but some of that's sort of been reversed and yeah. whatever. Um, yeah. So. so couple things there that i think i want to talk about um and well sorry but that's also not to mention all of the aging that the 10th doctor does when the master sort of forces him to artificially well age. that's true and then that's the year that never was and yeah and that, and right, and that gets reversed that. Yeah. as well so it's 
Anyway. He's so old he can't even remember if he's lying. That's how old he is. Right, um, exactly. But yeah, no, hugely significant periods of time passing with the 11th Doctor. And so the things I kind of want to point out there is, um, again, emphasizing with Matt Smith how that's been from kind of day one the thing that Moffat has said is he's, you know, he's, he's an old man, there's a, a young man assembled by old men from memory, that he's this old geezer in the body of like a 25 year old and so like hugely emphasizing that that you have now the youngest actor playing the oldest doctor and so really having him go for that and playing you know it i think it's kind of a shock when you see him and he's like leaning on the cane and gray-haired and kind of weathered but it's really really shocking i think when you get to the end and he's this sort of old Geppetto, you know, like in the, in in the rocking, rocking chair, chair, like um, just having, kind of giving Matt Smith the opportunity to kind of, well, you think he can play old? He can really play old. Um, sure. And emphasizing the age of this doctor, you know, and Clara even points that out about like, were you always this, this young? No, that was you. Like, even though he's the oldest, he always had that youthfulness about him. Um, and Matt Smith's ability to do both, like, to play young and old at the same time, um, is kind of, I think, one of the most kind of skillful things that he's able to do. Um, and then the other thing I want to point out is, with the 11th Doctor, bookending with this notion of the passage of time and with kind of the, the, 11th, the 11th Doctor's relationship to time. So um, having him be the Doctor who stays and stays put, you know, when you started with... Sorry, go ahead. You look like you're going to say something. Well, I was just going to say, like, we shouldn't get too much into, like, the full arc of the 11th Doctor because I know we're going to talk about oh, okay. that. You know, Sorry, I wasn't next sure if we were... Well, Next that's week. true. That's true. Uh, I, I, well, I think th I thought that was the plan that we were going to kind of do a recap like we did with the Tenth Doctor, but um, that's true. We can talk about more of that arc stuff. Uh, but arc I, I mean, so, but I think you're right. Like there is, there is definitely some of that. Like, like I mean, he even says like, oh, you know, finally, I, I forget the exact quote, but you know, something about finally found, you know, some a place that needed me to stay put. Mm -hmm. And and the thing that I so there were two two connections actually. I thought about that. One is I thought of a town called Mercy, mm. where where you get the sort of fairy tale aspect mm -hmm. of this protector, but then you learn that it's actually not the Doctor. It's this right. cyborg, you know, thing that that ends up being the protector. Um, and there's sort of like the penance aspect to it, um, and the you know from the war and, yeah. and destruction and death and all of that. Um, and so you now kind of get the doctor playing that role of the protector who lives on through various generations mm -hmm. of town folk and that they really come to rely on him, you know, to be that protector. Um, the other association that I had, though, was kind of the opposite with um, Vincent and the doctor, mm -hmm. where you get like he can't even sit five minutes and watch Van Gogh paint yeah. you know quietly 
<laughs> you know, so it's just this like, like if he can't do that, right? How could he stay in one place for three hundred years, right? Um, or the power or, or of whatever three, the or the power of right. three when it's he paints the fence and plays Wii and kicks the soccer ball around. How much time right. has passed? Fifteen minutes. Oh, I can't. Like you know, like yeah, right, right. Like normally he's just so, uh, you know, sort of. ADD mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever that like yeah he can't he can't just stay in one place and and do it now I mean on the other hand he's here because he has a purpose and it see like the implication is that there's sort of a constant threat through all of this too so right. it's it's not like he is actually just sitting around it's that there are sort of constant barrages from the various enemies that are here and there. And, and like, we get like the overdubs of, um, or the voiceovers or whatever Mm -hmm. of, you know, Tasha, uh, sort of explaining what it is, you know, uh, he stood as protector of both his own people in a new home. Um, in time he forgot, he, he seemed to forget that he'd lived any other life. So you get this idea that, you know, he's even been in this one place so long that he's not even remembering the adventures he used to go on. So in a way, like, you know, there's another sort of thing about memory. Now, does he actually forget? Maybe not, but it seems that way, at least to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also get uh, somewhere in there, right, something that, like, there's these, that there's these enemies kind of constantly, right. you know, sort of trying to break in. And, and you see, like, you see the little snippets with like the Centaurans and then like, you know, they suddenly aren't invisible anymore. And then you what's get, wrong like, with it? I don't know. The, I can't see it. <laughs> yeah. The, then you get like the, um, you know, the wooden Cybermen, like they've upgraded themselves to wood, right. you know, like, because this is what they need to, right, to get, get past through. the defenses and that kind of thing. So there's, there's just all these, you know, things going on still. So e- even though the doctor is in one place per se, mm-hmm. it's not like he's just sitting there watching Vincent paint right, or exactly. that he's twiddling his thumbs right, waiting right. for the little boxes to do something. Um, yeah, he has, he has, he does have to purpose. Do. He has yeah. like a purpose. Yeah. Um, and also I think the point about for at least the first couple hundred years, you know, when Clara says you didn't have your TARDIS and he says, ah, well that made it easier to stay. So this idea that like, <laughs> there's an admission there that he was kind of stuck there. And after that point, he kind of keeps the TARDIS as this reminder that he could leave and he's choosing not to he seems to have accepted you know his his role a bit more but at least for a while that was a that might have been a big temptation you know it it, it's easy to say when you don't have the thing which gets you off so um that's true and and he is kind of angry when it returns that it hadn't returned earlier so there is a possibility that maybe he would have left if, you know, had it been there. Um, Right, and the kind of fortuitousness of the fact that it wasn't, you know, um, that in a way that the kind of, I guess, catastrophe of that, that, like, that was exactly what he needed. So it's a good thing Clara jumped on and slowed it down because, you know, not having that temptation there enabled him to really 
stick around and protect the planet. Sure. Um, I mean, I also want to talk to just kind of note uh, the way that, you know, as we kind of get, well, just the, the fact of the voiceover, the fact that the only other real voiceover I can remember, again, apart from Elton Pope talking to the camera, um, the only real narrative <laughs> voiceover we got was in the end of time. So I like that of like, maybe that's a regeneration story pattern of like, it's a time to mm. take like a bird's eye view of like, you have this voiceover from a mysterious person who you don't know who it is at first. And they're sort of telling you like the epic story of what's going on. Um, but so you kind of have that to, you know, get you in these transitions between hundreds of years. And, it, and you also see in that time, the kind of myth of the doctor that gets built up like in this place too. So you have his connection with children um, and all the different drawings and stories that they do that like, you know, they're telling Doctor Who stories in the meantime. And you kind of see little pictures of, of monsters that we recognize and, you know, like stories that adventures he's gone on with Amy and Clara and other people. Um, so, you know, the 11th Doctor, that kind of connection with children um, and doing his little drunk giraffe dance and everything with them. But then, you know, so right. kind of showing him as their kind of storybook hero, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that goes to, again, sort of the mythic, mythic, uh, mythic nature, um, like I was saying, with sort of the relation to... Um, Mm -hmm. town called mercy yeah yeah um, definitely fixing toys and fighting monsters <laughs> uh, that's what he does yeah so all right we already kind of mentioned clara's intervention mm -hmm. in the crack And that kind of, like, there, there's this, there's almost a fatalism that the doctor develops. Like, mm -hmm. and I wonder, part of, you know, you talk about he sort of comes to grips with, with his being there. Um, and some of that is because he can't leave <laughs> because his TARDIS is gone. Right. Um, and I wonder how much of, like, I, I hadn't really thought about this before, so I, so this is sort of like an emerging thought mm. or, or theory or whatever, but, like, I wonder how much of that is tied together, because we get this, there is a sense in which we get the the ongoing theme of everything ends, you know, never say never ever, mm -hmm. right? There's this, there's this idea that things continually change and that things do continually end, Um and, you know, and Clara says, except you. And yes, yes, metatextually, mm -hmm. the story of Doctor Who could potentially go on forever. But the Doctor mm. doesn't seem to believe that. Mm -hmm. um, at least based on what he's sort of saying, you know. And, he, and he's even saying to her, you know, have you been paying attention? I'm an old old man no, now. And he's like, he's. I mean, he's coming up 
I almost want to say excuses, but they're not just excuses. They're actual reasons, at least reasons according to his understanding. Yeah. That, you know, he, he can't regenerate more. He's used all of them up. And, you know, and again, we reference River Song, who said that she used up all her regenerations. Now, we don't know exactly how many she had, because there was, like, the little girl regeneration, and then there was Mel to River, and but maybe there were others that we didn't see. Right. Um, especially when she was a girl, because she seems to kind of already know that she can regenerate and stuff. But um, there is there is this idea of you know that he believes at least that he's that he's done that this is his last one, mm-hmm. um, and also the fact that he's already visited his grave, which was at Trenzalore, and he's already experienced what happens there afterwards. So there's this. And and that you know, that conversation with the tenth doctor mm-hmm. that he has about you know, what's the problem? Where are we going? Yeah. And it's you know, and the tenth doctor is like, oh, we need to change. But like now we have the eleventh doctor saying we can't. Like mm-hmm. this is it. This is what happens. History can be rewritten, but sometimes it can't. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's this thing. Yeah. So. So there's this there's this sort of moment where he's facing his own mortality in a way that like he hadn't right. ever really before. Yeah. It seems like again, yeah. I've not seen all of classic Who. Yeah. At least in New Who, like he faces regeneration and I mean yes, there there's a sad moment here where he takes off his bow tie and stuff mm-hmm. and but it it's not the same like choking, tearing up moment of I don't want to go right right <laughs> uh for me yes anyway. that's just me okay um what the bow tie or the kind of fatalistic moment or both the the bow tie yeah. I mean like like there is that moment of that but the the like neither of those are mm. quite the same sort of thing as this yeah. conversation that Clara and the doctor have of this like like the, like for maybe the first time, mm-hmm. the doctor seems to not have any hope about his chances for survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it, I mean, he, that he really is essentially on almost a suicide mission here. Right. <laughs> like, like that's the way he sort of talks about it and that there's no point. Um, and we get the, you know, we get the explanation, we get the reiteration. I, I assume a reiteration. I think this is the first time they say it in New Who, maybe, about the limit of, Yes. 12 regenerations. Yep. So that that comes from a classic. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, a classic thing of of 13. Um yes. And and we've talked a little about, bit about that before like what what actually makes that is it a biological mm-hmm. physiological thing? Is it like a law but it's a law that's created by the time lords which we know the doctor has sort of fudged those before mm-hmm. anyway and gone around them and whatever. Yeah. Figured out ways to circumvent them. Um, I, and we still don't, I don't even know that we still know. Yeah, at the I end mean, of this I guess it seems like a bit more that, I mean, we do get him being given a new cycle, he says. So, I mean, it could be a biological thing, which is imposed by the Time Lord. It seems like Time Lords are necessary, you know, that somebody up there has the authority to grant which is a classic idea too that um i think there's whatever the episode is that they talk about that 
the master, you know, gets more regenerations or something. So sure, that's sort of sure. an idea that, like, oh, he could get more, but darn it, he burnt all the Time Lords. So now it's like, again, with that new catastrophe of, I like the, the symmetry of that, that he saves the Time Lords just in time for them to save him. You know, like, I mean, not just in time, it's hundreds of years later, but you know what I mean, that, you know, yeah. in terms of the story, he, you know, in one episode, he saves all of the Time Lords, and in the next episode, they sort of return the favor. Um, sure. But the other the, thing... The... Oh, sorry. Sorry. Well, I, I just, I wanted to finish out mm -hmm. sort of what I was... I was talking through there because, um, you know, in all of that fatalism too, is there, you know, there's this idea of him having visited his own grave mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the portent of that when it happened, but also sort of the effect that it has on him of that. This must be a moment. Like we're, we're never quite told about how the doctor can tell whether a moment in time is, fixed or not right um he just seems to be able to right um but he even says here like this is you know 12 regenerations i can't ever do it again and 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 i like how they sort of pledge the numbers to like make, bring it to 12 because yeah. it hasn't actually even with the war doctor it wasn't actually 12 yet but right. he's like oh you know uh number 10 once regenerated and kept the same face um which goes to my question about diegetic mm -hmm. because here he is calling number 10, number 10, right. uh, presumably number 10, like David Tennant. Yes. Yeah. Doctor. Like that's what we're, I think meant to be, because he even says that like, uh, I didn't call myself the doctor during the time war, but it was still a regeneration. Yeah. So when he says number 10, there's a little, there's a little bit of wiggle room there. Like, he could be talking about number nine, but like right. we've also but gotten the references before. Yeah. Well, I was going to say we've gotten references before to like 10 being a little, having some vanity issues. Right. Well, well, and, and yeah, that obviously I think being, I think you have to understand that that's the, the tenant doctor that he's talking about. He regenerated, yeah. he got the same face and for Rose, you know, it was for Rose saying, no, don't change. And he's like, okay, <laughs> I won't, you know, and the whole use apparently uses up, a whole other regeneration to do that. Um, right, right. You know, which I didn't want to make it too big of a deal at the time, but certainly wanted to flag, like, hey, what do you think's going on with this other, you know, this second doctor? So it is a kind of neat retcon that Moffat goes back and is able to sort of work it so that this can be the, the, the final. Because I was expecting... Yeah. What I was expecting was for the Capaldi story arc to be all about he knows his this is his last regeneration and the the right. impending doom of that this, but this just takes care of it like yeah you know yeah this obviates it so uh the right so again so just that but that whole conversation of of you know this is it this is the last whatever like it kind of sucks to see the doctor give up like, I don't know that we've ever seen, and again, ignoring classic Who, because I've never seen it, mm -hmm. at least in New Who, I don't know that we've ever seen him give up like he seems to. To this extent, right. In in this way. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it it's, a very, it's a very interesting moment. I just sort of wanted to talk through it a little bit, mm -hmm. because I do think 
and 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 it's that thing of like it's not even like because at first Claire is like trying to get him to go away, mm-hmm. and then she's like, "Well, at least regenerate." And it's like, "Well, I can't. Yeah. Like, I, this is yeah. it. This is this is the last one that I have." And again, like, I don't I don't know. Is is it a mental block thing? Like he just thinks he can't, and so therefore he really can't. Like it's psychosomatic kind of, mm-hmm. or is there, or is it? That he legitimately, in those moments, can't because he biologically can't. And it's not till Clara, like, convinces the Time Lords on the other side of the crack to do whatever they can. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they send through this energy or whatever, and it lets him regenerate. I mean, like, that's how I read it, but, I mean... And and that's how I sort of read it, too, yeah. but I don't, like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, that's that's certainly an interpretation. Right. And I think we're, the, not, the... we're not told the psychological component is part of that of, you know, he may biologically know he has no more regenerations, but also seeing what he thinks is his future, you know, um, on top of it, it seems like there's only one way that this can go. And, and, and we probably need to move on to our final things here, but one of the things that we've, I mean, we've even talked about before is like, you know, to what extent, like, like there is, you know, there is the idea of, you know, he's the last Time Lord and, and there's sort of Time Lord victorious in him. Mm-hmm. And how much of, you know, how much is it that not only is he the last Time Lord, but he therefore represents all of the Time Lords. And so everything that he decides is like Time Lord law. Right. So like, right. if it's, if it's time, you know, if you need... Uh, uh, like if a time lord can say well screw it I want more regenerations than 13 and so I'm going to have more than 13 re- regenerations can he just say that and and you know it be so mm-hmm. or is there like a knowledge thing like maybe he just doesn't know how to do that and so like he could theoretically do it if he knew or could figure out how but instead of doing that he spent the last 300 years you know protecting this planet right. and so you know, instead of setting up a lab somewhere to figure out how to get another regeneration out of himself, like, which would be a whole separate implication, like mad scientist kind of thing. But, um, you know, like, instead of doing that, he was protecting, so he just never bothered to, like, look that information up, and now it's too late kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's just impossible. And, And like you said, maybe there is some authority, whether a single person or whether a committee mm-hmm. or whatever it might have like in the Gallifreyan time Lord committee or whatever, yeah. you know, that says, okay, we're going to let him break the rules and give him another right. set of regenerations. And here you go. Right. I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, Those are I all mean, just we questions because, yeah, I don't think we get enough information about exactly sure. what it is. I mean, I think, what seems clear to me is that the Time Lords were at least somewhat necessary because you see them kind of bestow regeneration energy. He kind of absorbs it before he starts to reach. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely different. Like, you know, they, it's, you have this kind of golden light come and which he sort of inhales and then he starts to regenerate. So it seems to me that there's some sort of something that the Time Lords are doing. So that could be anything from 
making him physically capable of doing this to giving him the knowledge of how to do it to giving him permission to do it. I mean, it could be any one of those things. But um, right. to my reading, and this could always be contradicted or retconned later, it looks like he needed them, you know, more than just uh, something he could do on his own. Um, and I think, to me, that is kind of the nice catastrophe of this arc is the salvation of Gallifrey which results in the salvation of the doctor you know that one would not be possible without the other you know so there's a kind right. of this is you know the tenth doctor had a reward you know which was seeing all his companions again this is kind of the eleventh doctor's reward is good job saving Gallifrey you get a whole new life you know um, sure but, uh, you know, it's not really spelled out exactly how it works. So there's plenty of room for them to finesse or contradict that later, I think. Um, and so we get the final moments of regeneration. Mm -hmm. um, uh, man, we're over time, but yeah. a few things. So And we can uh, always... Uh, do more in the recap too so that's true that's true but we get the so we get of course we are as you already alluded to amy's last appearance um, mm -hmm. where they're both apparently bald under their wigs yeah. um yeah there's a nice meme where it's the two of them and one of them says nice wig and the other says you too <laughs> <laughs> uh so um that's nice and of course it's sort of a memory it's not a yeah. actual appearance um right. with the end with the importance of memory to the amy storyline i think that's only appropriate i also like a mirror the mirror of she's kind of his imaginary friend now like there's a nice sure. kind of symmetry to that that sure she's just there for him in that moment um so yeah, yeah. a nice little cameo i think um and and the sort of typical last minute of regeneration and into the 12th doctor mm. of who we knew was going to be Peter Capaldi. Um, and, and the sort of what has become typical, at least in new who I, again, I don't know if this is true in classic mm. uh, of sort of a mention of some like body part and like the surprise that like right. it's being there. You know? Right. <laughs> um, and, 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 and saying something sort of weird and nutty about it, you know, uh, the fact that he has kidneys and doesn't like the color. Right, like, I uh, like how they get progressively wackier. Like, you know, the 10th Doctor's like, oh, big hair and a mole and whatever. And, you know, the, then the 11th is kind of uh, thinks he might be a girl for a moment, disappointed he's still not ginger. He's sort of, you know, looking at his chin and everything. This one, apparently the color of his kidneys are not what he it's like how does he know what color his kidneys are and why would he care right. um right like yeah the kind of i think by now it's like you're used to the idea that the doctor's a little loopy when he regenerates so it's like a way to make that even weirder than it already yeah. was um and and a return to the i think you, you know i think we're crashing <laughs> like this yeah. you know this idea that there's something which which is interesting because that's not 
like I like you can understand why that's happening, you know, in the first episode mm. way back in season five. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not entirely clear why they're crashing now, other than just that the doctor doesn't really know how to fly the TARDIS, as right. as is kind of his final line there of right. like, uh, do you know how to fly? This do you know thing? how to fly this thing? Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I don't know which, that. Which, I think it's which just is that nobody's at the controls right now. So yeah. Yeah, which, which is a callback to when Tasha Lem mm-hmm. sort of appears and is like, "Oh, it's not that big of a deal to fly." Mm-hmm. Um, and and hints throughout the series of the Doctor not always being the best right. pilot of the TARDIS. Um, right. Certainly, River seems to be much better at it. Um, right, right, leaving the brakes on and everything. Um, right, but well, I, I like the noise. <laughs> It's a brilliant noise. Um, yeah, and a couple things, too. I like, um, you know, the way he says, just one question. Do you know how to fly this thing? Like, so that we kind of have a new first question now. Like, we kind of end on another question. Um, mm. And and ending on that question of, it's always come back to Doctor Who. Who is this new person? You know, that we have a whole new... Sure. A whole new person to learn. And it's always... And I want to emphasize too, like the the kind of it's always exciting to get a new doctor, but the fear of that. And I think they play that well with Clara. That it's interesting to me that she, in a way, should be more prepared than anyone else to meet a new doctor because she's met all the doctors and been through his timeline. Like if anybody should be should know what regeneration is about, it should be her. But I think it's that thing of knowing something is coming can sometimes make it harder. You know, like you feel like with Rose, she had no idea what was going on. And it's not until later that the grief hits her of he left me and he abandoned me and I don't want that new one. I want the old one. You know, whereas, you know, and at the beginning, she's sort of just sort of dazed and what is going on. You know, whereas with Clara, I think you get more of a sense of her grief leading up to it um, mm. of, you know, trying to convince him to, well, first to regenerate and not just to die, but then kind of being pleased that he seems to not be changing and, you know, how, you know, kind of grief stricken she is when he actually does start to regenerate. Um, and then my, one of my favorite things that Jenna Coleman has ever done is that wide eyed deer in the headlights look when Capaldi stares at her, you know, gets up close <laughs> in her face, that look on her face of just what is, did I just get myself into? Cause she's met all the doctors, but now here's a new one who she doesn't know anything about. Sure. So kind of intellectually knowing what's going to happen and actually being prepared for it, I think are two different things. So, um, Oh yeah. And I think Absolutely. we've all had that where, going through a bad experience rather than making you more prepared can sometimes make it worse because then you just obsess about how difficult it's going to be. Um, Mm. So um, it's actually interesting because I feel we haven't had any companions around for the regeneration, you know, in a, like since Rose, since, you know, so it's kind of a nice, you know, after the 10th Doctor regenerated alone, I think it's nice to go back to having someone there where you have, like, an already established relationship 
that you have to, um, she has to learn how to deal with this new person and he has to sort of figure himself out too. I don't have anything to add to that. All right. <laughs> um, which I think is a good stopping point. So we'll we'll be back and talking more about the Eleventh Doctor and sort of his legacy. Sure. I guess um, if we can call it that. Yeah. Uh, and we'll be talking about some Angel as well next week. All right. See you then. Mm-hmm.